Schneider, and this is The Off-Duty Diplomat, a podcast about the 10 years I worked for the U.S. Department of State. Here we are, back again, talking The Diplomat, the show on Netflix recapping season one. We are here today and gathered to talk about episode five and six. So yeah, I'm going to get straight into it. So episode five, called The Dog Catcher. So we have a dead Iranian ambassador, a will they, won't they situation with Kate and Austin, a what the fuck and why situation with Kate and Hell. All of these things are true. Where could we go from here? War with Russia, maybe? At least that's what's on the agenda for Stuart and Idris' conversation over breakfast, along with a pet, and making sure that the president gets back on to where he came from before he could start some drama. From there, we go back to the Wilers, who are having a similar discussion over coffee. Kate is lamenting the fact that someone's packed her stuff for her. God forbid. She's about to go to Chevening. Is that how you say it? Chevening? Che- Chevening House? Chevening. Is that a real place? Chevening? Chevening. Yes. Chevening. That's a real place. Yeah. All right. Boom. Yeah, dude. It's a, it's a large country house built between 1617 and 1630. Ah. Uh, formerly the principal seat of the Earls of Stanhope. Wow. Okay, great. All right. So we already have one good fact checked. Chevening. All right. Boom. I was about to say it wrong again. All right. Chevening. Chevening. Um. In the show, this is the foreign secretary's country bunker where they're going to do some capital D diplomacy, start a war. We'll find out. They have an awkward morning after conversation and then we are on the road. Kate and Stuart have a conversation outside the car after the caravan is stopped on the way to the house where he lays out his plan, a hug, pivot, bear strategy. All right, so I'm going to pause there for a second. Alexis, what did you think about that? Hug, pivot, bear. Uh, yeah, that's pretty common. Yeah, and, and honestly, the nomenclature for that feels like something that our senior staff would be using. So that seems about right. Mm. What's funny to me is she's into the choreography aspect of diplomacy, but she doesn't like the image aspect of it. It's like these two things go hand in hand, lady. I know, and it's funny because we talked about that a good like we spent a decent amount of time talking about that and like <laughs> it was like the perfect segue or like setup for all the stuff that we see now okay so let's break down the strategy so the hug is to show us uk forever and ever bff pivot we're pivoting away from iran is it iran or iran 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 okay see all right thank you thank or you if you're american a- iran <laughs> iran <laughs> iran down the street we don't worry about <laughs> actual pronunciations in the United States. Uh, very rarely. Well, at least we, again, we tried. Uh, so we have to pivot away from them in a, but in a like, I'm not sorry way. Cause we don't like them. We're not friendly. Um, and now that they know that it was Russia who did the thing and the bear is basically Russia. <laughs> so after help, he's on the tree, <laughs> they get back in the car and they head, head to Chevening. I did have a, a note on this one where it's like, the security office irritating everyone is very accurate where it's like, oh, sorry, we've got to hold the motorcade here for a while and then we'll let you know. And they often will not tell you why it's being held. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you don't have need to know on that. We're just going to hold here for a while. It's like, really, y'all? 
All right. Uh, and then I also, this is very uh, frivolous call out, but that away luggage they packed her in, very accurate. Yes. Almost really? every diplomat I know has away luggage. <laughs> I have away luggage. <laughs> they are not sponsoring the Department of State, but they should. They should sponsor us. <laughs> I hope these people are listening. And if not, I need to run this back. So when we're big and famous, I have a list of sponsors to call. <laughs> away luggage. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we want to get out of here. We want to go places um, with some cute luggage. Lol. Lol. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Boom. Here we go. That was, that was the ad right there. Lol. Um, okay. So once they get to Chevening, Austin, my boo. Hey. He introduces Kate to Cecilia, who at first I thought was his old lady, but now we later find out that was the sister. She's also fabulous. Just like fabulous. I've seen that actor in a lot of stuff and I feel like her character is always amazing. Like she is killing it in the actor game right now. Not that anyone needed to hear that, but I've seen this lady in a bunch of stuff. As soon as she came on screen, I was like, this is going to be good. Oh, okay. So that's a fun fact that I was going to say for later, but fuck it. We're doing it now. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Don't apologize. We're going to go all over the place. But we're going to get there and we always eventually land the plane. The point of this one is her real name is Tania. I think I hope I said that right. Tania Miller. She played in The Haunting of Bly Manor, which I will never watch because I do not mm. do scary movies. But people on Reddit said that. So I trust them. <laughs> She's also in the recently released and wildly popular Fall of the House of Usher, which oh. you also should not watch because it will be too scary for you. But I loved it and it was too scary for me. Oh, <laughs> And the funny thing is, is like Netflix had been telling me to watch it and I'm just like, ah, oh, it's good. I don't know. But it is. I don't know. It's going to if you didn't watch Lovecraft Country, you're not going to. Oh, no, I one. did. I like Lovecraft Country. I love Okay, Lovecraft. if you can handle Lovecraft, all of it, then this you could probably handle. But and it's uh, I used to watch it at night and by myself. Ooh. Oh, well, that's a flex for sure. <laughs> I def I could not watch Lovecraft at night, yo. Especially not when we got to episode I think it's five or six with those girls. Oof, that was the end of it for me. No, I would. That was the most terrifying thing I've ever seen to this day. Yeah, I would watch it at night and then I go to bed. No nightmares. None. Yeah. I'm strong. Okay, I'll take it back. You should watch Fall of the House of Usher. You will enjoy it. Oh, uh, narrator. She was terrified. Okay, back to <laughs> episode five. I will, no. We will finish this eventually. All right, yes. boom. So we meet the fabulous sister, Cecilia, who quickly latches on to Hal. Um, meetings ensue. Agenda changes. Surprise guests. Trowbridge pulls up in a red Jaguar, which was awesome. That car was... Kate does her best to work with Austin and Idra on a solution before the Secretary of State, Gannon, comes on the scene. But the PM won't budge. And he even denied them lunch, which I thought was extra, extra rude. Cruel and unusual. While they are brainstorming, Hal and Cecilia take a walk, play a game, smoke a little weed, go for a swim, do a little hooking upping in the pond. Hal shares Cecilia intel with Kate. And this episode ends with Kate being Kate, suggesting that Trowbridge pick something in Russia for the U.S. to bomb. What are your thoughts on the episode five, the dog catcher overall? Um, overall, it felt to me like one of the most accurate depictions of diplomatic life and work I've seen so far on the show. Uh, and I feel like they got to mm. that in a bunch of different ways. Mm. Yeah. One of the first things I, I wrote is the diplomatic housing is incredible. And I've been to some of the London diplomatic housing and it is in fact, absolutely gorgeous. Top of the line, great location. Like, dang, this is real nice. Told you about the away luggage. 
Very mm-hmm. accurate. I told you about the RSO mm-hmm. irritating people mm-hmm. by causing stoppages that are never explained for undisclosed amounts of time. Also very accurate. Um, the way they handle the paper, that whole discussion about the one pager. Oh my God. Absolutely correct. <laughs> and I, I, it was so, it was such a giggle for me when they, when Cecilia brought out that list of activities they'd given her that she was allowed to do. I'm like, this is so on point. This is exactly how it works when spouses are traveling. They do have separate activities. They don't participate in any of the main stuff unless it's just like ceremonial. Otherwise, they are very much off doing their own stuff. And it is often very inane, like pick flowers, go to a museum, you know, have tea, that kind of thing. (laughs) I love how she walked up to hell and was like, oh, so you're the wife. Hey, like everybody already just kind of (laughs) knows. I kind of love it. But I feel like that's also very British. It is, but it's also, it showcases the built-in heteronormativity and patriarchy in the diplomatic space. It's just like, oh, one of you is unimportant and that person is usually female. So all of the structures around the partner, quote unquote, are reinforced that over and over and over again. We love that. Love a good structure. Ah, okay. So let's talk about episode six and then like, let's talk some real shit. Episode six, Some Lusty Tornado. First of all, (laughs) love the title. Anyway, we open this episode with how soothing Kate after a lover's quarrel with Austin in their room with some booze. He ups the ante with a pantry raid that is quickly interrupted by the PM himself. This twist of fate gives them the opportunity to lobby him directly. He, the PM, decides to give Kate another at-bat for the diplomatic package in the morning. So they have to work overnight. (laughs) <laughs> as real important diplomats do to figure out how they're going to come up with like the umpteenth plan to get this man to say, okay. So tipsy and determined Kate runs to Austin, puts her foot in her mouth. And he does the same by actually finally admitting he has a crush much to my chagrin. How could he be in love with someone other than me? Weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> she implored him to make some phone calls. Everyone's running around, people in their drawers, putting on pants, doing the things. (laughs) Hal goes to get Stuart. They set up Kate's room as HQ. Everybody does the work. Stuart pulls up on Idra and almost gets his ass blown away. (laughs) She greets him with her Glock and a silencer and then offers him an omelet. That's kind of amazing. (laughs) They immediately start talking work. She shows what she could. My favorite part is just like, you'd be the first person to know. Actually, you'd be the eighth person to know. I appreciate that level of self-awareness and honesty. Look at them. I really feel like they're like helping make tandem couples look like not terribly toxic. Maybe your face is different. Okay. Uh, (laughs) No, disagree. They're they're, um, not the most toxic version I've seen. Okay. Well, yeah, you have IRL experience. All I have is this. So (laughs) for me, I think that they're cute. That was very cute. So we're back to bombing things. Um, And PM is convinced that he wants to bomb something. And he suggests a very specific triangle that he also says wrong, which triggers something in Kate's like very special, very smart brain. They all start putting two and two together and they realize that somebody else has been talking to him while they were over there doing their thing in the nighttime. He was doing his thing in the nighttime with the old, maybe racist lady who lives down the street. So we got to go down there, grab her, forget our actual job, 
send the husband to go do the actual job because now the secretary of state's here with a weird rash. He's all itchy. He's all, it took me nine hours to get here when it shouldn't have. Very, very funny business. So towards the end of the episode, we learn a lot. I'll just go this just real, real quick. The um, CIA people and the MI6 people can't figure out where the Russians did what they did. Gannon, again, you pulled up weirdly with a rash. What's going on there? Trowbridge has some political foes in his kingdom that he needs to thwart by looking like a big, strong man. Gannon is a hater. We're not surprised by this, but he's hating in such a way that's going to get in the way of progress. And Hal actually knows that Stuart and Idra are fooling around. So the questions that we are left with after we see a throuple forming at the end of this episode, which was awesome. Are Trowbridge and Austin on the same page? Seems like the Brits are beefing. Stoned Hal might be my favorite Hal. I don't know why that is. And why is he still accepting Kate with these horrible ideas? What happened to Gannon and where he going? What's going on with these tandem couples and their friends? And who's going to get bombed? And should they? Quite the recap there, yeah. Fallon. There's, there's a lot here. <laughs> These uh, two were thick. They were thick. That's why I took very, my time. They were going very through dense. it. Yeah. I, I had some critiques at the beginning about the pacing of the plot, and now I'm like, oh, you saved it for episodes five and six. Because here we are. They're doing the HBO thing where they put all the good shit at the, the end. The plot has arrived. She is here. Right. She is. Okay, so I don't know. Where do you want to start? Like, I got stuff. I wrote it down, but like, what you got? I just I just want to throw out there my first note for episode six is notice how much better the discussion is after everyone is eaten. And I just wanted to throw that out there because the skipping meals part of this is so real. So real. So they really do that. You just don't eat. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? Oh, no. No, no, no. So there wait. were big actual diploma- diplomatic decisions are made on empty stomachs. That's dangerous. Every single day. Stop. Every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's yeah. the main thing. Hangry, hanger <laughs> is ruining democracy. <laughs> hanger and sleepless nights and are dysregulating everyone. Dysregulating democracy. Oh, my God. Well, yes, yes. That was so real. That working overnight thing. It's like, oh, we just got the message that they might be open. So it's all hands on deck. Everybody gather. We got to do this. Got to do that. And you're kicking away. And what I love so much about it is they do all that work just to have it shot down. I'm like, this is so real. This is 100% real. I did that so many times where we would be pulling all nighters, like dropping everything else by the wayside to get this thing together, just to have the principal be like, no, we decided not to. As in-house creative at various companies, <laughs> that also resonates because, man, you got to go back to the drawing board umpteen times because somebody who didn't really know what they wanted sent you on a fool's errand and is using you to work out their own internal ideas externally. Fun. Or they just needed you to be a distraction, you know, or they Ooh. or they have you do it to like kill time so people think that what's it's a lot of what shows up here, right? Like the PM clearly is talking to Royland. So he's, mm-hmm. he, he knows probably before they even are doing all of this, that he's like, just kind of messing with them. Cause we actually mm-hmm. don't know when he talks to her. We don't know if it's before they eat in the kitchen. We don't know if it's oh, after, we don't know if it's I'm that morning. We have no idea yeah. when. So it's very possible. He's just like, yeah, go do your wild goose chase. Uh, but actually this whole time I'm just going to hold out and then do X, Y, and Z, but it's quite common. 
that that you do all that work and be killing yourself, destroying your body and mind to get to an outcome and then have the principal be like, nope, sorry, do something else. That to me falls into the lack of work-life balance and passive aggressive as a lifestyle buckets themes that we've been tracking. hundred <laughs> percent. And I think also this like chronic requirement that you at literally starve yourself physically, yeah. emotionally, other ways mm. in order to do the work. You literally sacrifice everything over time to do the work. And I know, you know, not to be hyperbolic, obviously they're going to eat again, but it's like not having control over your schedule like that for years on end will absolutely jack up your physical and mental health in the long run. Oh, I mean, it's evident in the kind of dumpster fire that are there in interpersonal relationships. So, I mean, okay, basically what I'm hearing though, and this was my first question, but you already answered it. It's like, was this an accurate depiction of how these diplomatic negotiations go? The only, well, I can't speak specifically to a negotiation set. Well, that's not true. I I participated on the periphery of one that occurred while I was in Israel, actually. But at that time, the principals involved were not allowing note takers in the room. So I only know what happened on the fringes. So I could see when people were going into rooms and doing X, Y, and Z, but I don't actually know what happened in the room. I do, however remember us missing lunches on a regular basis to call so-and-so, make sure this email, whatever. Um, So that definitely is very real. The sense of urgency is very real. The only thing that seems not quite right to me is that they're doing all of this from Chevening House. Um, And I'm sure some of this would have required classified systems. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't do that from another, you couldn't do that from the like official building of another government. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's technically an official building. Chevening House is owned by the British government. You know, it's the official residence of the foreign minister. So, so yeah, it's a little mm, ah. that you would be doing that kind of stuff there. Interesting. Where would it be a better location for it? Like what? The, the embassy? embassy? Interesting. Well, okay. How is that different from like the gala conversations? Are those any less official? Uh, I mean, the gala stuff. <laughs> I think what the show is trying to say is that classification only exists if you're not the chief of mission. Like if you're not the ambassador, then those people have to worry about the rules of classification and stuff like that. But yeah, she's saying all kind of stuff to Austin Dennison on a regular basis that she should not be putting out there. It's like, girl, you know, you ain't allowed to say that. <laughs> If it needs to be said to that government, then Idra is the one who makes that call, not Kate. Really? But Idra also can't do her work there. And Idra wasn't even really there for a good chunk of it. Right. She can't. Yeah. That's why they had to zoom her in. Oh, interesting. Well, okay. So wait, we are mostly, we are going to spend most of our time talking about Chevening House, but something happened at the Weilers' actual house. There was a quote specifically that was said um, that I want to pause on. So Hal said this when they were having their awkward morning after conversation. Said, Catherine, only you can ruin a perfectly good wordless role in the ashes of a dead union. That was a bar to me. And I think after our last conversation about the other two episodes, there were some really key moments, key Kate moments, I'm going to start calling them. Like, and he called out a big one that I think you were kind of thumping on. (laughs) 
<laughs> in your frustrations with her. Yeah. <laughs> what are your I thoughts? think she's trying to find some clarity. I think um, when you work in a world that's so opaque and where things are constantly evolving and so much is known but not stated, there's this sort of dual quest for clarity and redefinition, like clear definition of things as much as is possible. And I think that's what she's trying to do with her relationship and really tell herself like, okay, I put Hal in this category. Am I taking him out of that category? If so, where is he going? I think in her mind, there's like two buckets where it's like, we're all in, we're together and it's functioning or we're not together. He's out of my life. I'm free to do other stuff. And it's clear that they really exist in a gray area. There's a space between those two things that they kind of ping pong back and forth into. Um, And I think we see her trying to sort of figure out where they stand now that this new situation has happened. And uh, yeah. Gray, outside of that being her favorite color for her outfits, is not a place where she, I think, is comfortable as a character she's not which is so funny because diplomacy is literally gray area right it's all gray it is it's just like it's like a a a gray a gradient (laughs) see what i did i should say (laughs) the work all gets done in the gray (laughs) and so let's let's keep talking about the the rolling stoner hound for a sec um i think he did a decent job of being the wife this episode but he also i think personally so i'm gonna hard project here I think that men do when they know they ain't doing nothing good. He is just like, okay, why can't men just cheat or do they dirt <laughs> without throwing their current partner under the bus? No, this didn't happen to me. Never. He threw so much shade at Kate in the process of doing something really objectively shitty it's like all right dude i know you just got beat up in the woods but you don't see here talking about like oh i'm a magnet for mopey women and then proceed to do some shit with a mopey woman who is not your wife again they live in this gray area it's all gray for them and and it's clear there aren't even really rules about whether or not their relationship is open You know, it seems to be closed because he can't perform with someone who's not her, but it doesn't really seem like there's any other reason that he's not cheating on her. Poor him. Uh. Okay, let's chat about this for a second. Did what he do, did in the, did what he did, Lord. Did what what he do with Miss Cecilia in the pond constitute cheating? Is that cheating? It's cheating to me. It is cheating. I, I. I would say so as well. I mean, it's cheating to me, but who knows what these people think? Their stuff is so off the map. He clearly told her about it. So up until that point, I had assumed that he was a philandering and meddling husband. Um, Mm. So I think like they wrote it into the script for us to give him a little bit of a pass. It's just like, oh, no, he's not doing this all the time. It's just maybe this would. But then he also kind of ends up later on in the episode, one of these episodes, suggesting that maybe she like hook up with Austin. It sounds like he would if he could. But I think this also gets back to this whole marriage as a business partnership mm-hmm. versus in the tra- quote unquote traditional way that we think of it as a mm-hmm. sort of love union, et cetera. And, and I think it's clear that there is love between them, but they've been married for yeah. quite a long time. I think they said 15 years, which is a very long time. Yes. Uh, and 
I guess maybe their partnership is evolving in some ways because she doesn't seem upset when, you know, he tells her about Cecilia. She didn't seem Mm-mm. bothered at all. No. Well, and I think for the first time ever, you actually start seeing how maybe give a potentially authentic re- emotional response when he's like, fuck you, I'll give you 15 years of my life. You should give me a chance. That felt mm. real, but I don't trust him. It felt very manipulative to me. Yeah, that's what uh, I'm saying. Like, it felt real, quote unquote, but I don't trust this guy. Yeah, I, I don't think we should. Um, Hal is definitely not my favorite person. Um, as we've discussed, I think he's the archetype of a lot of what is wrong with diplomacy and what has historically been wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, I am not a fan. He does a good job of being the wife in that quote unquote wife in that, you know, in a traditional diplomatic setting. And I think I told you this in a previous conversation we had, but diplomatic diplomatic spouses used to be rated on their performance along with the diplomat in our official um, performance reviews and with the state department, I think until like 1973. So -hmm. it went on for quite a long time that your wife, because it, you know, at that time, almost all of diplomatic spouses were wives because until I think the 60s, late 60s, women were required to quit if they got married. They had mm-hmm. to resign. So you have, you know, this tradition of sort of the spouse, like not officially being employed, but still having work to do to further the career of the, the diplomat themselves. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that work is social, you know, in nature. It's about building relationships and getting that kind of unofficial information that's very useful um, in many ways, it's a, you know, it's a ceremonial role, but it has, it has a lot of value and it's very much unacknowledged and unpaid labor that diplomatic spouses are expected to do to this day. Yeah. And like, I think that him doing it and then now seeing Cecilia, who's not necessarily a spouse, but like, again, a friend of you start seeing the gender roles flip a little bit. Like Hal is the one making sure that she eats instead of the other way around those types of things. Like he is doing some messed up stuff on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's kind of also helping her take care of herself in ways that she struggles with. <laughs> yeah, it's all gray. Uh, I feel like that's the theme of this, these couple episodes, man. It's like their relationship is, they're constantly trying to define it. And it's very clear that it exists outside of the boundaries that they are comfortable with. Hmm. And also you said something about like bad with diplomacy. I'm going to use that as a bridge to this next question. Do you think they're modeling Trowbridge after Boris Johnson? Yeah. So we got a Boris and Biden thing going on. (laughs) It feels very much like Boris and Biden. I only say that because President Rainburn doesn't seem as unhinged or confused as I would expect it to be if it were Trump and also obviously wouldn't have a black chief of staff if he was Trump. Um, The other thing I was going to say is at the end of episode five, my last note for that episode is it's nice to see someone else be completely unhinged in their experience of foreign policy. And I'm looking at Denison, who's like, oh, the PM is absolutely insane. Insane. And I remember being in that situation and being like, oh, uh, we have lost control of this vehicle. It is it is driving itself and we don't know where we're going. Yeah, we just got to buckle up if there is a Mm -hmm. (laughs) seatbelt. I had so much empathy for him in those moments where I'm like, I remember what it was like to work for someone and be like, this person is nuts. Like they are, they are making decisions that in hindsight will be completely inexplicable to everyone else. 
and it's happening in real time and there's no way to stop this. And all I, all I could do is try and keep it from being a complete disaster. It's um, a lot of the work being sort of like, oh, it's not as bad as it could have been. And that's how you know you've got to yeah. win. It's like, oh, they made a less terrible decision than the one they wanted to make. And that's my win for today. Well, and then we learn more about his story. And again, like his his beautiful, beautiful soul and his beautiful heart out here helping the poor little sisters of the world get their drugs. <laughs> oh boy. I mean, there is something that is super cute and sweet about that, but that is also like eye roll cringe. It's like, okay, really? Come on now. You can't just be out here being everybody's martyr. You can't be just Captain Saitla. Everybody. You can, and it's a real personality type that's quite common in the Foreign Service from my experience. A lot of people who care too much and they and they just want to be there and fix it, you know? It takes a certain kind of person to do this kind of thankless work where they don't even let you eat your meals on a regular basis. And child, but he's just like, oh no, you fell down. Let me help you. Oh, you dropped your Altoids. I'll be there. Oh, you need your Oxys. I got it. <laughs> I'm like, I need him to toughen up. But I still think they're cute. I still think they're cute. I ship it. <laughs> they are cute. Um, I think she would devour him. <laughs> she would. She would swallow him whole. And I think that's another rough thing about being in a relationship with somebody like Hal that makes you constantly be pushing back in order to maintain your sense of self. Once that pressure is gone, you don't stop pushing for a good long time, which means whoever you end up with next is going to feel you constantly pushing them, hitting them out of the way when they're like, I'm not even coming over there. Why are you proactively defending your boundaries? Like no one was approaching them. Yes, you were. I felt it. <laughs> it's Kate. a rough, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, I would say there's a lot of personal fallout from their very dysfunctional marriage that they're both going to have to deal with. But in this instance, it's very much bleeding over into the work. And does it happen the affairs, the swinging, the all that stuff. Absolutely. Swinging. Oh, law. Oh, yes. Oh, law. Yes. Uh, oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> very much does happen um, in diplomatic circles. Quite common. In fact, uh, don't you ask a follow up question. I see you. I see your face percolating. Don't you dare. I will not be answering them. Protect, you know, the the innocent and the guilty alike. Um, mm. But yeah, that is quite common, quite common in the diplomatic world. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I, ah! all right. Diplomats after dark. You can ask one follow-up question. If no, you Ugh, no, I won't do it. I won't okay. do it. I won't do it. No, I won't do it. Wow. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're going to talk about this like later. Uh, <laughs> Like I, I have lots of questions, but no, I'm not gonna. Do and it. I have many, many stories. Ah! Many. Yes, that is gonna be a wine conversation. I love it. <laughs> okay, so thinking about Trowbridge still. So one thing that I noticed this episode, we also find out more about their dynamic. Like he, homie, doesn't even trust Austin, and I feel like they have a similar situation, like the president and secretary of state. Like I'm gonna put you here to neutralize you. I literally wrote down, I was like, Secretary of State is a compensatory, you know, appointment. I, I called it early on and I you and I, it comes out again with Denison and Trowbridge it where does. it's like, well, political rival, pretty important, can't alienate him entirely, but I can't risk having you too close to the center. So put him in charge of foreign policy. Now, I don't know if that's the kiss of death in the UK the way it is in the US. Yeah. But it's giving. It's not the PM. 
No. Well, and again, he basically is just like, I don't trust him. Oh, uh, yeah, of course, I'm not going to win the morality war. But also we find out more like, let's talk about some sexism. And he was pretty much the main arbiter of sexism in this, these two episodes for me. His comments, his affect, everything about him was just creepy and gross. Um, all of the talk of the size of various German and Belgian members that comment about like to Kate about um, any argument that includes the sentence is what we agreed on last night. Like, sh- okay. All right. Enough. What, what are your thoughts on him this episode? Yeah, he's completely true to form. Um, Trowbridge, I think represents a really common trope character and frankly personality that exists in political circles and every place I have ever worked. Uh, hyper, well, sorry, a man who is not hypermasculine, who wants you to think he is, yeah. who is obsessed with public perception and popularity. And the thing is, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because politicians are not politicians because they're subject matter experts or because they're particularly smart or because they're particularly talented. They succeed because they're popular and because they can win votes and because people like them and they want them in office. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, winning hearts and minds and being likable in the right way, quote unquote, and all of that stuff. And so... You know, you see a man who is not particularly capable, not particularly bright, who is easily swayed by a stronger personality and a surer hand and a a faster brain. And so a lot of, I think the work for those of us who are at the working level is trying to help your perhaps less capable boss or principal to make good decisions, even when you know this is not a person who was hired for their ability to make good decisions. How do you do that as somebody who would have to support them? How do you manage that? (laughs) Oh, a lot of what Megan Roiland does, a lot of what Kate does. The act, the work of managing an ego is uh, something I think Unfortunately, women are socialized to do particularly well, Uh which is why with a lot of these incapable men, often you will find women in the background all over the place, the ones who are actually keeping things running. Now, I think where, you know, you can dispute is whether or not those women always have an agenda or represent an outside agenda. Obviously, Meg Rutland does. Yeah. um, In this instance, and Kate does as well. She represents the interests of the United States, but it's a lot of coaxing and finding those psychological triggers to pull on. Oh, sir, you know, I came up with these three options. Obviously only one of them is a good option. And I know that it'll be clear to him that the other two are not good options based on his preferences, but it's gotta be his choice. Or you give them steps one through four and let them figure out the next obvious step, which is five on their own. Mm -hmm. Or, um, one of my favorites because it's such direct inception, but surprisingly, a surprising number of my principles have absolutely picked up on it is, Hey, I wonder if, um, this would work hypothetically. I mean, I feel like that's probably dumb though. Right. And then the next thing you hear in a meeting is them saying exactly what you said hmm. word for word. It's <laughs> like, wow, what a brilliant idea. Huh. That was incredible. I wonder how you got there. Huh. Interesting. We know exactly how you got there, but I, I think, um, <laughs> one thing you one thing you need in order to do this well is you you need to be someone who doesn't care about getting credit for yeah. your work. Yeah. Um because you're not going to get it. Not with these people. And if you fight for credit for your work, you become hell. 
The reason Hal is unpopular is because I would say one reason he's unpopular is because he insists on being the figurehead for the things he gets done. People are a lot less opposed to you being effective when they get to take credit for your work. Mm, No, you're never gonna get it. But again, that's another gender dynamic. You know, women are socialized to let other people take credit for our work or to go unacknowledged or to, oh, of course she was going to rewrite the whole thing at the last minute. Of course she was going to stay up all night and come up with a new plan. Can you see Hal on his own staying up all night and doing all of that work and making all those phone calls? No, he would have delegated to someone else and gone to bed, but not Kate. Maybe. He didn't even want to help her until she was just like, he was like, I want to be your partner. I don't want to just do it when you tell me to do it. Um, hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's In that just, voice. And that's part of leadership <laughs> is the assumption, well, someone else will do it, you know? Oh, I said I don't want that. Someone else will come up with another. That's Trowbridge's whole thing. It's like, oh, well, if you got an idea, I mean, you can do it. You come up with one. You can pitch it to me. It's like, are you going to do any problem solving? You fool who happens to have your finger on the button, but that's not the way it works. They are presented things and then they choose between their options. Even though they probably already know what they want in the back of their brain and might be wasting time. But then flip it and (laughs) Stuart literally has to like force Kate to delegate. Force it. He's like, look. And I loved it. I loved him yelling. She deserved it. I loved it. So I literally wrote it down. Finally, the DCM calling out her, ignoring everyone else in the embassy. And I was like, absolutely. This woman is being ridiculous. And frankly, her even being awake for that whole overnight scramble is kind of inappropriate. Mm -hmm. You're not at the working level anymore. It actually is not her job to put that together, which is also why you need to include your staffers in what's going on. So they're read in enough to do the work. So that you can go back to doing your stuff because the principal is not supposed to do that work. Scope creep is something that I think everybody has probably experienced at work. And it usually happens when you're experiencing a leader who is not confident in what they're doing or experienced or practiced in what they're being tasked with. That's the telltale sign of an MF over their head. If they're like, no, only me. It's one thing if you're an individual contributor, like I've been in most of my career, but it's the managers who can't delegate that are dangerous. They are very dangerous. They are, I'm going to just flat out say it, having been a manager, you are a bad manager if you cannot delegate. If you micromanaged at the level that she is micromanaging at her position, and especially considering, I mean, they don't show it, but... That embassy probably has like two or 300 officers. And this woman is the one who's up all night putting this together. Ma'am, that is nonsense. That is nonsense. Well, but she, she did eventually delegate some of it and let kind of sort of let people do the jobs. But that was one of the second times that she got read. Another time that she got read was by, again, La Dame Celia. This was a quote. I literally laughed. She said, it must be so hard to be so spirited and yet so ill-informed. I said, ooh. But facts, because she is. That is like <laughs> Kate on a plate. 100% right. 100% right. Um, she's, yeah, it's very true. And I, there's so much about Kate that is frustrating. Oh, <laughs> um, For me personally, for me personally, uh, you know, she, she is, um, she's triggering, she's triggering in so many ways. Um. <laughs> As a former diplomat, as a former female diplomat, as someone who's worked for senior female diplomats, she is triggering on all levels. <laughs> but yeah, it's 100%. And, there, and there's a reason, you know, that there is more than one person at an embassy. 
And yet she has no, and, and honestly, that makes me even more worried for the kind of leadership she would have had in a place like Afghanistan if she'd gotten to go. Because if there's ever a place you need to be able to delegate and listen to multiple voices and let people do their individual thing and then come back to you, the leadership with the information, it's freaking Afghanistan. It is not a one person shop. Do you feel like she would have been more collegial and more down the roll because she would have enjoyed what she was doing? Part of me, I think I'm going to double down on the theory that I'm the hypothesis that I floated last episode. It's like, she's tantruming and raging because she's in a situation where she feels like she doesn't have control. If she would have got her preferred assignment, if she was able to do the work that she thought was important on her terms with her team, with her people, remember she's with people who she doesn't know, quote unquote, doesn't trust. She had a whole mental model set up for how her shit was going to go. And it's nothing like that. And now she's stuck with this man that she wanted to get rid of. That would have probably been easier to get rid of in Afghanistan if she wasn't being groomed for doing what she's doing. So... Mm. I think she would probably be more willing to take care of herself because I think in a place like Afghanistan, it's a lot more explicit that like you need to eat and you need to sleep because if you don't, you're not going to be able to respond to what's happening effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think even a lot of people who really overwork themselves and have really tied their value to their production, give themselves permission to take care of themselves um, in a war zone in ways that they don't in other places. So there is something about being in a hardship or a danger post that I think makes people feel explicitly like, okay, I'm allowed to like take time for myself because this is objectively very difficult. I think when it comes to the work and as a leader, let's saying, you know, she was going to go there and be the ambassador. I would not think she would be a good ambassador for mm. Afghanistan. Having served there, I think she's way too focused on only her equities. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's a really dangerous way to be in a place as complex as Afghanistan was and is. Um, There are so many moving pieces. There were so many moving pieces at that embassy. There were so many different audiences we were trying to target for different things. There are so many different initiatives that we're trying to run through, not to mention our close collaboration with the Department of Defense on the ground and the other agencies and the other partner governments that are there. She is so one track. She really has the intensity and the focus that would make a great mid-career officer. Yeah. I mean, she's clearly top of her line as an individual contributor, but she is a terrible manager. And honestly, that's another reason why a lot of people can't and don't make that shift or that jump. Some people are just not meant or built to play with others in that way. (laughs) My my first year in Afghanistan, I had five direct reports and I was managing a program with those people very directly. And we had, you know, daily meetings and I had a weekly one on one with every one of them. And we could talk over pretty much any significant thing that mm-hmm. came up. My second year in Afghanistan, I got handed an additional twelve million dollars in funding and programs to cover and an additional seven direct reports. So I couldn't have daily meetings with everyone. And I couldn't do a one-on-one every single week with each person. There was not time for that, you know, aside from the other work that comes with managing additional money and grants. And because of that, I had to learn, well, I can't have this minute oversight. So what I need to do is see who the leaders are on my team who are naturally emerging and who are able to do this work and who I can trust to bring anything significant to me and elevate it and start grooming them for that leadership. Because this is the way things are now. And that's what needs to happen. Did I love running that program the first year? Absolutely. My heart was in that program. It still is. 
I think of it, it's to me, the most meaningful work I ever did as a diplomat was working on that program in Afghanistan with those Mm. people. But it could not have functioned as well the second year if I insisted on trying to play that role while managing additional people and resources. It just would have been untenable. And that was really when I had to learn that lesson about how you manage effectively, even though you might feel in your heart like, oh man, I really miss doing this individual contributor work. It's just not doable. And I will make the team worse if I insist on doing it. You know what I just realized, like literally just realized in listening to you, this show right now, or at least it's full of these characters who are all on an individual hero's journey. Yeah. They all like, I, I don't think that that's necessarily this profound like thing, but it literally just, it is in my third eye. I'm like, they are all singularly on a hero's journey, but also collectively like everyone except for Stuart. Oh, I know who I think is of the entire group, the best and most practical diplomat in terms of like moving things that need to be moved and keeping everything running. Yeah. Because everyone can't be the main character all the time. And the fact that, you know, people's inability to transition that mindset is what really drives me nuts. And it's what drives me nuts with her because she really is wasting resources and opportunities. You don't have, can you imagine, what could she be doing if she delegated any of this work to somebody else who was just as capable and able? And I know they're there. To be honest with you, according to the show, nothing else, because it don't seem like nothing else happens at the damn embassy because we don't see Exactly, which is even worse. (laughs) There's so much, I guarantee you, there's so much happening at that embassy that this woman is ignoring in order to do this nonsense. (laughs) That's high profile. You know, this is the hell influence. It's like, oh, pick the most sexiest thing that everyone's looking at and then do that and keep yourself in the spotlight and whine about it the whole time. Yeah. And that way you get promoted into higher office. But it's like the work that needs to be done here is much broader. It is. It absolutely is. Okay, so let's talk about this dog catcher thing. Is that mm. a th- is the dog catcher um, a trope in the diplomacy scenes? Like, what does that mean? Does that have any meaning to y'all? I don't think I've ever heard that. Okay, well, when I did my Googles, it says like a low level political official. That's the like informal USC and definitioning of it Hmm. a low-level political official that was a episode title for episode five in my thinking and prepping for the show i was just like so who was the dog catcher is it kate well i think it has to be kate yeah because and i think that they kind of highlight that in the episode before right where they're like oh you know she's the right level to be giving this information to because she's like not too important Mm -hmm. but not you know not important Mm -hmm. you know and and i think I guess that's maybe why, you know, that intelligence comes the way it comes when they're in Denison's office. It's like, well, this is an option, you know, because you can pass Hmm. information at any level. There's no need to go directly to the ambassador. Yeah. There are plenty of people in Idris' shop whose job it is to receive that information. You saw her, uh, you know. Talking to that one guy. Uh Yeah. Huh. And and with old girl on the bridge before that. That's with the blonde. Yep. Hmm. You can pass information at any level. There's no reason for it to be ambassador to ambassador unless you, you know, it it would just, I'm not sure that they've made it clear that like that level was necessary. necessary. Hmm. Well, um, and the same thing with how being taken before we find out he was behind that. He took took himself. (laughs) Took himself. But it's like, y'all didn't have to go to the ambassador's husband for that. Hmm. Okay. So how do you feel about the final diplomatic solution offered? Um, yeah, right. Diplomatic. Well, 
I get <laughs> look at me barely answering this. Um <laughs> this is the Lebanon thing, right? Uh yeah, no, Libya. So what they Libya, end up yes. deciding is to all right. I actually yeah, they're contracts. gonna attack. They're gonna attack the the Russians the in Libya. Russian security contracting force that actually is an arm of the Russian military in Libya as they are destabilizing that particular area. Um, yeah, the land. And I actually wrote down people. in my notes: proxy strikes are a hallmark of post Cold War and the post nine eleven world. So that is quite common. And this is you know. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying here, this is pretty much all Googleable. So if you don't believe me, you can look this up. But, you know, the United States has military support in lots of places. For example, um, <laughs> in a place like Ukraine, we are sending weapons, but we also may be funding some security contractors to be on the ground there and help support that war effort. They're not American troops. Mm-hmm. They are not the American military, but they are people with military training oh, no. that are possibly funded by America. So this whole, like, I guess to give a, oh, I'm so sorry that I'm doing this. Um, if you want more information on this, you can listen to our bonus episode on the nuclear order. But um, post-Cold War, uh, the global order is was in flux because pre-cold war we had a bipolar world u.s ussr u.s versus the soviets communism and capitalism and both of those were nuclear powers which means they cannot attack each other because that will cause world war three it's this concept of what they call mutually assured destruction right they shoot a nuke we shoot a nuke whole world is gone Mm -hmm. so we can't let it get to that point so what happened is we started doing proxy wars meaning that the u.s and the USSR would fight in a country that was not either of our countries, but was another location that could be basically a pseudo front for this war between capitalism and the us's and uh, them communism. Right. So that's why you have Vietnam, you have Korea, mm-hmm. you have uh, fill in the blank all over Africa uh, in those um struggles for independence and the coups that would occur. You see this all over Latin America. You see this in Cuba. Yep. And so that's why a lot of those things happen because the U S and Russia cannot fight each other directly No, because that will be a world ender. So what has to happen is that non-nuclear states fight these wars on our behalf or are the battleground for those wars on our behalf, Mm -hmm. Because that's considered safer, although I'm sure the populations that host those wars have another perspective. There is no new land. There are no new fights. <laughs> and in the post 9-11 world, what this does is this gets more complex because we have to weave in non-state actors right. who are on the board now in a way that they weren't before. So instead of it just being like the government of Russia versus the government of the United States in this other country, what you now have are these, you know, pseudo armies that are still funded by a government and supplied by a government, but all of that can be kept a lot more secret than when someone shows up in an American tanker, you know, with an American uniform on. Um, And also because, I hate to say this because it's so cynical, but uh, pseudo-militaries are not subject to the same laws that countries are, such as the Geneva Convention on war crimes. And what can and cannot be done in a battle. 
uh, how you're supposed to treat civilians, how you're supposed to be treating prisoners of war. When you don't have an official war between official countries, it's all gray area. Hey, mm. yet again, gray, gray area. areas, gray areas, all of them. So them talking about attacking a Russian proxy military outpost in Libya is pretty, pretty on point. Pretty on point. Pretty accurate. That is the way this happens now. That and the fact that they went to through 5th ideas and versions of the story of the strategy to get there. And the fact that she he had to get a, you know, previous to that, she's getting a list of potential strike locations from DOD because they're not officially part of the military, but that doesn't mean that they are not cooperating with, funded by. For example, when I was in, when I was in Afghanistan, there was a military base next to slash at the embassy, and there were innumerable security contractors working at the embassy and on the military base. Mm -hmm. What were those guys doing? None of my business above my pay grade. Don't ask, don't tell. Don't want to know. Don't ask me that they were not wearing American uniforms. (laughs) They are not bound by the same rules as the gentlemen who are wearing uniforms. (laughs) There's a lot of uh, nonverbal communication happening right now. (laughs) Yeah. You guys, you can't see our faces, but we are. (laughs) We're both looking at the camera. Um, But yeah, that's so this suggested solution is something that is not at all out of line. I mean, he even him even starting with bombing the Aleppo Rakahama um, triangle. That's in Syria. It's not Russia. It's not Iran. And that's a real that's a real place. Yes. yes? Okay. It's also he said Hamo. What an idiot. He's such a dumb dumb. Again, we don't, our <laughs> politicians are not in their positions because they're good at anything other than being liked and popular. Ooh, but he's not good at either of those. People like him enough. Oh, gosh. Yeah, no, I just, I don't, I don't enjoy this man. I don't enjoy this man at all. These two episodes did not endear him to me in any way. He's an absolute idiot. And I like, I like his characterization because number one, it's very on point from my personal experience with people like him in positions like his. Number two, I like that they have Megan Royal in there, who's clearly the actual power behind the throne and is almost Uh completely unknown in the public eye. And what I love about that is- when you have an incompetent leader, look for the puppeteer in the background. Yes. There's always one, at least one. Usually there's multiple. Mm-hmm. The proxy strikes, I literally made a note on it because I was like, yep, this is exactly how you deal with this kind of thing. Something has gone horribly, wildly wrong. And I really try hard not to be alarmist um, on this show for many reasons. <laughs> but based on my personal and professional opinion as a former diplomat, foreign policy professional, et cetera, if the U.S. ever declares war on Russia or vice versa, you should be afraid. You should assume it's the end of days. The end has come. Yeah, gird your loins. That's it. Cause, cause, I don't yeah, even gird your loins. There's it. no point. You will. Oh, no. You no are going to, to die in a nuclear fire. Kiss your ass goodbye. Yes, it's done. Fully. That is what we chose for uh, the global order. Oh, all right. You know what? I'm going to sage the mic after this. <laughs> That's, I'm just saying this whole situation. I mean, there's a, a lot, lot of darkness behind when they make these decisions. And I think maybe a lot of people don't realize that, you know, this is a thing that was decided back when nuclear armament was happening. And because we live in a post-nuclear world, there, there's no going back. 
you know, and there's been, you can't war the same. You got to fight different. We have to, we have to fight differently. And that means that those who don't have nukes and probably aren't going to get them are the ones who are always going to pay the price. Global security, global peace comes at the cost of those who are not nuclear states. Huh? I have, those are the people who will die in these wars in these proxy battles. And they have been for the last 50 years. And that's the unspoken truth behind the mass migration movements we've seen over the last half century, Uh, a lot of the climate issues happening, a lot of the um, continental political battles that go on. All of that happens with this kind of silent context that's almost never directly stated. But the fact of the matter is, if you do not live in a nuclear state, you are in an insecure position. Mm -hmm. And again, according to the show, if this is anything close to what it actually looks like to be in those rooms and how those conversations go, none of those people were concerned about the human cost. I don't actually recall any of them. Maybe Kate maybe said something at some point. I could go back. I'm happy to be wrong. But I don't recall anybody thinking about or actually raising the fact that, oh, okay, if we do drop a bond on off of Rakahama, <laughs> uh, what's that going to mean for the people there? I feel so bad. I feel so, so bad for saying this. And I wish it were not a true reflection of my experience, but caring about the individual, the individual human being at pretty much any level of diplomacy, but especially at the senior level is considered immature, naive, weak, inappropriate. Um, it is something that is frowned upon professionally. Mm. Well, it's clear that it wasn't even in the room. It wasn't even in the room. So it wouldn't, it's, it's, it would be considered off form to even mention that. And we exist in marketplace of favors, as Kate said. So we do accurately. And this game is, again, I feel like this is another way in which gender comes in because it's very, to me, very patriarchal to not be interested in the human cost of these battles. Um, and I, in some ways, you kind of resent the implication that only women care about people. Yeah. But it's also like women are often the ones impacted the most by these decisions that are made in rooms that almost none of them get to enter. And even if it might not actually impact me, a singular lady person, I come from a legacy of women for whom that impact was very real. Very, very real. Real enough for them to live long enough to tell me about it. So even if I didn't experience it myself, I have stories within me and I come from a legacy of women with stories of harm done to them by people like these people who made decisions that did not even consider them or that impact. Decisions that are 0% about the people involved. Even now in this show, if we're talking about individuals who have been harmed, we're talking about the British servicemen. Right. No one no one here is talking about the... Trowbridge talks about the wives, but he does it as a he political He talks about it because chit. a woman yelled at him. Yeah, because somebody yelled at him and he didn't like it. He's not talking about it from the, oh, I'm really concerned. No. He's like, oh, I wish you had your Second Amendment rights. Well, you've just got it's right. Considered, it's considered like jejun to even mention the human toll of the work of diplomacy. And to me, that is very wrongheaded. It is very callous. And I think it really dehumanizes 
our decision-making process in a way that I, I think is quite dangerous and actually magnifies the harm that's done. Because I'm not saying that hard decisions won't have to be made, but there's no harm in acknowledging that what was done is going to cost somebody and then it's going to cost them a lot. And I think the reason that some of that is avoided is because if you know you've done harm to someone and you're claiming it, then the next question is, well, are you going to make restitution? You know, any, any accountability. What does restitution even look like though? I don't know. Give these people who you're about to attack, the ones who survive, you could at least offer them special refugee status. But you have a lot happening in these conflicts and these people try to come to the U.S. and other Western countries as refugees. And then we have these big conversations about whether or not they deserve it. And, oh, it's not our fault, your homeland, blah, blah, blah. In real ways, it very much is our fault that their homelands are in uproar. Those are American-made weapons in in most cases. In almost every Mm -hmm. conflict, you will find American-made weapons from our defense industry in the hands of whoever's fighting. I mean, the legacy of imperialistic structures are being blown up as we speak, like literally as we speak. And I don't, oh man, I just realized blown up sounds terrible. I don't mean it in that way, but like, actually it's happening right now. It's happening and playing out in real time. And yeah, it is, it is. And then, and I think this is the real question that needs to be asked by and is asked by the global South of the global North, but really we in the global North need to ask it of ourselves. What do we owe to the people who are upholding the global peace? They are the reason that we have global peace in this Mm -hmm. structure, in this format, in a post nuclear world. Yeah. And we, you know, we're gaslighting them constantly in our own citizens into thinking these people are owed nothing when in fact they are the reason that we are not living in war zones. And the new political landscape based on the new populace, at least here in the United States, is unwilling to turn a blind eye to that. They expect some type of plan or at least acknowledgement, bare minimum acknowledgement of the human element and the human toll. Because, again, we failed them on the civics education of it all. I mean, they could listen to the pod and get get some civics AP situations from us, (laughs) they're not going to get it in schools. I mean, we're banning and burning books left and damn right. So it's like, you're not even really going to get like the information to be able to deduce and critical think your way through this shit. And also what you, what do you see? You see what's on TikTok. You see what's on Twitter. You see what people are telling you about that. And if you don't think to Google, Oh, is the U S supporting militias and military actions in Africa right now, in South America, Central America, in the Middle East, in Asia. You won't know these things. I got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from a top 10 school in international relations. And I was a diplomat for 10 years. That's why I know this information. But why would the average person know it? You know, why would the average American know it? Yeah, you opt into it like triple time you really (laughs) wanted this information the rest of us are just vibing and like i mean i it's cool i mean i like knowing stuff because i'm a little nerd or whatever no one has incentivized me knowing this information as a creative professional who's mildly successful like there is i've not been incentivized to get this other than my own curiosity that's why i ended up on this track man i pulled a couple threads you know in in grad school and that led to a couple more threads or sorry in undergrad led to a couple more threads Mm -hmm. in grad school led to a couple more threads professionally and before you know it 
a lot becomes quite clear about the way the structure is set up. And I know people hate theory classes and hate, you know, people explaining underlying systems. But once you have that mapping of the global structure and apparatus, so much else that happens becomes not only obvious, but very predictable wildly predictable. And frameworks, again, if frameworks work in a whole bunch of different contexts and we've applied them often, if you are a software engineer, especially a front-end engineer, you live, you love a good framework. So this, going back to the intention of even why we did this, not even planning on going here, this was not on the paper, but that's kind of (laughs) at the core of why we're even talking and recording it. It's like, here, here's a different way to think about this. Here's like a cute little framework. That you can maybe like put in your yeah. little toolbox. All right. So getting back to this show, I do have one. I know. I'm so sorry. I took us down a, such a dark rabbit hole. It, uh, dark? No. I mean, it was giving Alice in Wonderland, but like, whatever. Come through, Cheshire Cat. Let's let's go. Here we go. Here we go. I would love to be the Cheshire Cat. What a peaceful life. Ah, see, how did I know you would love that? How did I know? <laughs> Out of all my giant smile and cryptic utterances with an unearned sense of cheerfulness where you're just like, she seems a little unhinged, but also happy about it. All right, cool. Uh, I mean, bye bye, girl. I did I wasn't gonna <laughs> say that, but I don't disagree. <laughs> I think it's pretty accurate casting, frankly. I don't even know why I'm here. You know what I mean? I feel very Cheshire Catty about it. It's like who knows? Damn, that was a missed opportunity. Halloween next year. Cheshire Cat. Yeah. <laughs> real life. Real life. Actually, okay. Gannon is also giving Cheshire Cat, but also I think he's done now. Where is it? Where did he go? Gannon. You don't know. Gannon where is did he go? So <laughs> he went to South Carolina. No, no, no. But I mean, like, remember at that last scene of the sixth episode where they're at the dinner and like how oh. before how oh, was yeah, like, yeah, you yeah, gotta yeah, end yeah. him. You gotta kill him. Yeah. You gotta knife him to get ahead. I know. And she did it. Machiavelli over there. But again, he's still incepting her with these fuck ass ideas and she's still listening to him. She's kind of, she is it, was it a completely freaking insane Hail Mary of a decision? Yes. Do I support it? Also, mostly because in my opinion, it almost never matters who the secretary of state is in a positive way. The real question is, are you doing damage to the institution? So there, as long as you're like not actively destroying stuff at state, you're going to be considered a good secretary. And Gannon was being a hater. Like at a certain point, he was actually getting in the way of progress. He was being obstructive. He was being obstructive. And it's like, okay, well, sex state is there to represent the interests of the United States, but specifically the president, the executive. There's a reason State Department falls under the executive branch. So if you can't fall in line with what the president wants, then you shouldn't be doing that job. And I would say that to anybody who was even an entry-level officer, if you can't uphold the policy, then you should quit. And a lot of people do, they resign. And that's exactly what Gannon should be doing um, if he can't do the job. That's the work. Mm. Well, we're going to see. So the final two questions I'm going to ask you every time. Oh what are you looking forward to? All right, we got two more episodes after this. So this, the next one we do is the last one. What are you looking forward to? And what do you never want to see again? Oh, what am I looking forward to? I um, I want to know where this is going because there are two more episodes and it looks like we quote unquote solved it. So mm-hmm. like, what else is there plot wise? Don't come for me, plot right. writer lady. I'm sure you have a plan, but currently I don't know what it is. <laughs> um. 
<laughs> what do I never want to see again? Hmm. You know, I'd be happy to not see Nickel Trowbridge again. He sucks pretty bad. Oh, same. He sucks. And uh, I, yeah. And I'd also be open to not seeing Megan Rylett again. She also sucks. She is, she is the actual devil. Trowbridge is just a pawn. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like her. She's like the, the, the like evil feeder fish on the shark. There are many, many, many of her around the world, unfortunately. And they're very good at what they do, which is giving idiots like Trowbridge a sense that they are somehow great men, even though they're just a suit. You could just as easily be anyone else. And the reason I would say kind of an unspoken reason that Dennison didn't win is because he would have been harder to control. Yeah, it, that and he's like too pure of heart and stuff. Well, he should, this man should not be in senior government to begin with. Austin Dennison, I, again, I did not work in the UK. I have very limited experience of UK diplomats, but sir, this is, you are far too pure of heart to be doing this work at that level. I mean, look at how next to Austin Dennison. Oh yeah, no, no. But that last sir, scene, baby, that last scene was Cecilia called it. Her and Stuart are sitting in the corner like, oh, oh, oh. They look very comfy, cozy on that couch. I will say I like all these black people in positions of power. I enjoy that very mm-hmm. much. Oh, same. It's uh, um, not I'm at all living. reflected in real life, but I no. support it all the same. I worked for oh. one black ambassador in my career. Wait, you had your black lady adjudication crew in Juarez, though. We were all entry level. Oh, okay. We okay. were not making any important decisions. <laughs> Y'all were vibing, though. States. Yeah, we're we, we 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 did vibe on occasion. We did vibe on occasion. Uh, yeah, after, that's after doing very serious work, quote unquote. Um, that's what I'm here for. I'm looking forward to seeing where the twists and turns take us next. Because as you said, we got two more episodes and we've quote unquote solved it. So what now? I don't know. Bombs over Libya, maybe. No, oh, no, that would suck. Well, we will leave it here. And then return to wrap this thing up. Dope. <laughs> See y'all next time. Uh, bye. Off Duty Diplomat is an oral memoir of my career in the Foreign Service. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love a review. Thanks for listening. If you would like to support the show, you can do that on Patreon, or you can buy hats, mugs, t-shirts at Tee Public. If you are a current or former diplomat that would like to tell your story, you can email me at offdutydiplomat at gmail.com. 